Welcome to SocialCast, the weekly podcast talking about enduring societal hurdles in the United States and how socialism offers a way past them. You know, Derek, I was thinking just the other day about, uh, you remember Tuta Bella in Seattle, that amazing pizza place we used to go to? Oh, they had the best flatbread. Oh my god, it was just amazing. I wish I could get something like that down here where we're at now. Well, I was thinking about starting my own pizza company. Let me tell you about it, and you tell me what you think. So, I was thinking that the, the best business model would be a membership model. And I'm going to start by charging all of the the people that want to participate in my pizza membership restaurant $400 a month. And then anytime they want pizza, they're going to call me and I'm going to tell them how much pizza they can have today and what kind of pizza they're going to get from me. And then they still have to pay for the pizza itself. But over the course of the month, for the first $250 that they that they order in pizza, I'm going to pay $125. Well, so far, this sounds like rubbish. I don't see how a, any kind of business with this model could possibly be successful. Really? Because I thought it was a pretty good idea. Well, as someone who would quite likely reach $400 worth of pizza in a month, I just don't see this being feasible, and I, I can definitely see better ways to use my money to get pizza. So... You think that charging $400, but then another $125 for the same amount of $400 worth of pizza isn't good? Well, I mean, is your pizza, like, literally the best pizza in the world? No. Some of it's... Is it, is it like, top ten? No. Oh. Um, I, I just don't see how this is feasible. I don't see why anyone would voluntarily go into this. In case you missed it, avid listener, we're not actually talking about pizza today. We're talking about healthcare in the United States and the racket that our health insurance system actually is. It's worse than a pyramid scheme. It is. In order to have really a, a baseline conversation, let alone a higher level conversation about health insurance, we really need to understand how health insurance works. Now, most of us are going to be pretty familiar, especially with the employer-offered health insurance. And that's where you have a plan, maybe two, if you're lucky, that you get to choose from. And you, you make those choices based on what the plan covers, what it doesn't cover, and what you think your medical needs are going to be while you're on that insurance plan. And then you're stuck with it for a year 
you can always change it at your next open enrollment period, but largely you're going to be stuck with it for the, for the following 12 months. And when you, when you join that insurance plan, you pay a certain amount each week. And a lot of employer-sponsored insurance plans, the employee contribution is pretty small. It's generally around 20% of the, the cost of the plan. And then most employers will cover the other 80%. And it's not something that we ever have to think about. But where does that money actually go? I think that's a great question, Derek. And if you really look at the breakdown of once the dollar leaves your paycheck and goes into the health insurance company, that dollar gets split up and it goes in a lot of different directions. And a very large part of it does not even go directly to your own health care. And a, a significant chunk doesn't go to health care at all. It goes into administrative costs it goes into profits for that company and a good chunk of it goes to the actual cost of care for other members and i think that's the most important thing for us to understand about how insurance works because we're socialists and when we talk about healthcare, our end goal is to get us to universal health care of some sort Right now, the predominant conversational topic is Medicare for all, but our, our goal is the same. Universal health care for every citizen in the United States. And the, the pushback is, well, I don't want to have to pay for someone else's health care. This is the kicker. If you're participating in an insurance program, you're already paying for other people's health care. And further, even if you are not participating in a commercial health insurance plan and you are still consuming health care, you are still paying for the cost of other people's health care because people who can't pay for their health care drive up costs of, of care at point of service which the hospitals then have to turn around and charge a higher rate to everybody. So this is why you see the $20 Tylenol that you got at the emergency room and the $15 Band-Aid that they put on you. It's because they are having to make up for un unreimbursed expenses. And in that way, when That's you're right. a person who goes and has the means to actually pay their bill and does so, you are actually paying for the health care of many, many other people who are not fortunate enough to be able to pay the amount that they incurred. So Lance here actually has a, a ridiculous amount of experience working within the healthcare field and specifically working as a a person in emergency departments in hospitals. And so my question for you, Lance, is for every one person that you saw pay their, their emergency room bill in full without insurance, how many people do you think there were that didn't pay anything at all or paid substantially less than they were billed? There are at least two parts um, to the answer to that question. The first is the person who actually pays their bill in full on their own, out of pocket, with no 
insurance with no reimbursement is an absolute unicorn. They don't exist. Um, I mean, they do exist. They There are people out there who do pay their own bills, and that's great, fine for them. Um, but they are such a small portion of the healthcare reimbursement mechanism that they are almost not worth considering. Um, to, to try and come up with a ratio of them to anything else in this context is going to come up with numbers that sound made up and imaginative. But if you want to look at a percentage of people who are just unable to pay their bills, I would say it. this is, again is a very kind of mixed bag answer because hospitals specifically in Oregon are actually obligated to determine if someone is eligible for the Oregon Health Plan, which is our state's incarnation of uh, Medicaid. And so when someone tells us, oh, I don't have insurance, we are then obligated to say, well, let's figure out if you're eligible for Oregon Health Plan, and if you are, we'll get the application started for you. So in that regard, even the people who can't pay their own bills, that's a, a ever-vanishing portion of the population. Um, but even so, there's still people who can't and who aren't eligible. And for them, I would say that's probably anywhere from, I mean, I'm just coming up with firsthand colloquial numbers. I would say anywhere from two to 4% of people who come through the ER don't have insurance and don't have the means to pay a bill out of pocket and are also not eligible for any sort of public health reimbursement program, whether that's Medicaid, Medicare, or any other programs. Okay. So going with that 2 to 4% number, are those people the same people that are least likely to seek care until it's a much bigger problem than it might have been when they first got sick? Yes, absolutely. Um, almost to a point of exclusion, I would say. It's... <clears throat> It is a mix of people who are seeking emergency treatment for non-emergent problems because they know that the emergency room is the only healthcare delivery model in the country that can't say no. There's a law in existence that was made in the 80s called MTALA, uh, which is the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. And in short, it tells hospitals that they can't turn people away or send them somewhere else because of their ability to pay or inability to pay. Um, and so that leads to the people who come with non-emergent problems. And it also come, it also brings people who have an emergent condition that could have been treated in a clinic setting, who could have been treated in an outpatient or less acute setting than the emergency room. Which, coincidentally, those are vastly lower cost um, to the consumer. If you go to a doctor's office, generally speaking, even if you're paying out of pocket, your, your maximum out-of-pocket payment that you're going to be making is about $200 to $250 compared to the average out-of-pocket cost of the emergency room, which is about $5,500. Um, which, if your budget for healthcare is zero, both of those numbers are inaccessible. 
and if the one who charges less can tell you we won't see you because you can't pay us, you're going to go to the one who can't say no, even though it's a higher cost, and then you're just not going to pay that bill. I think the thing that I find most startling whenever I, I talk to somebody about health insurance is that even with the implementation of Imatala, there are still 26,000 people who die each year in the United States because they didn't get health care that they needed. I think that's a very alarming indictment against health care as a system and health insurance as an industry because it means that there's almost 30,000 people who could have lived if we had some form of universal health care or, or a structure in place to provide care to everyone who can, even if it means adjusting rates, even if it means, you know, there. it's really hard to just to, to dance around, we just need universal health care. It's, it's so clear as day for, for us um, that it's hard to try and, and create baby steps to get there. And not only do I see it as, as rather damning of our healthcare system that 30,000 people are dying unnecessarily each year, but I like to contextualize it a little further and say that healthcare is a $3.8 trillion a year industry. Why are we letting 30,000 people die? I think that's a really good point. And when you look at all those dollars, those trillions of dollars, and you look at where they're going and how they're being used, any person with a rational and moral brain is going to think, well, how on earth could someone have taken a huge bonus at the end of the year when there are literally dozens of thousands of people who died because they couldn't afford health care? Or who let a a healthcare problem become exponentially worse than it could have or than it should have been because they couldn't afford to access healthcare. So, I, I I happened to look this up, and that three point eight trillion dollars that we're talking about when we're talking about how much we're spending on healthcare each year represents almost 20% of our, our nation's GDP. It's 17.7%, it's but that's a huge chunk of our gross domestic product just to be spending on keeping people healthy and keeping people alive. And when, when you think about that amount of money, a lot of my, a lot of my brain goes to, where is that money going? And so I, I started looking into this, and there's there's this concept called administrative waste, and I I don't really understand it. Maybe you can explain it a little better. But this this idea of administrative waste is over a half a trillion dollars every year that we're spending. So what? is administrative waste. So here we define administrative waste as money spent on billing, coding, paperwork, and profits. Let's talk just a a brief minute about those profits. I want to look at some of the, the private health insurance company CEOs 
and just look at how much money they made. Now, the, the most recent data available is from 2017, so dollar amounts have probably changed, especially over the course of the pandemic in 2020. But let's, let's start with uh, Mark Bertolini, the CEO of Aetna. In 2017, he took home $58.7 million. He made $225,000 per day. Joseph Swedish, the CEO of Anthem, took home $26.4 million. David Cordani, the CEO of Cigna, took home $43.9 million. The CEO of Humana, $34.2 million. The CEO of Molina, $30.5 million. The CEO of United Health, 19.8. The CEO of Bristol Myers Squibb took home 11.4. Gilead, 20.9. Johnson and Johnson, who I didn't even know, provided health insurance. So to clarify, these are the CEOs of health insurance companies as well as pharmaceutical industries or uh, pharmaceutical that, companies. That makes more sense. Yeah, Gilead is pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And, and Merck. Johnson. And Merck. Ugh, Merck. Johnson and Johnson, twenty-three million. Merck, fifteen million. Pfizer, twenty-six point five million. And a lot of, a lot of those pharmaceutical companies, are are responsible for a huge amount of price gouging that also goes into our total healthcare expenditures. Pharmaceutical price gouging cost us over one hundred thirteen billion dollars in two thousand seventeen. And we're the only country that can get away with it. Every country that has universal health care pays pennies to the dollar what we do for the exact same medications that are manufactured in the exact same places and are delivered in the exact same ways. And when you look at just the fact that we are paying so much more and it's all just profit... It really, really just kind of makes those 26,000 people who died sit a little bit heavier than they were before. Let's go back to administrative waste and, and what that represents to the healthcare industry and how, how that could be changed and lessened under a universal model. Well, I think the first thing in reducing administrative waste is especially if you look at the CEO profits that's I think kind of the the center of the target for this topic obviously other things like the billing and coding those things are necessary but they're a, a, a fractional component well and for for billing and coding there's not really any universal standard for that is it so so yes there is some uniformity uh, there's the ICD-10 codes that virtually all healthcare providers use, and that um, stands for the International Classification of Diseases. But that's and, not really going to touch on how people are billed, right? Like, hospitals largely create their own billing structures, right? T- yes. Um, they do decide how they're going to run their billing, but um, Medicare actually sets their own rates for how much is compensated for a specific code. So if you go to the hospital and you're diagnosed with a specific code, there's only so much that the hospital can bill for if Medicare is the payer. And all 
insurance providers negotiate their own rates and they generally look to Medicare for guidance because what will happen is if it's too different from Medicare's reimbursement rate is hospitals are going to start saying, we're not going to take your insurance anymore. And when enough people or when enough hospitals say that to an insurance company, they stop making money. So they have to kind of follow Medicare's lead because Medicare is one of the largest. I don't know if they are the absolute largest, but they are one of the largest reimbursers of healthcare in America. Um, so to that extent, there is a general overlying principle, um, but the exact rates, the exact pricing, the exact methodologies being used, that is very much up to the individual health organization. Which is why we see two hospitals in a, a more metropolitan area have vastly different pricing for, say, radiation treatment for cancer. Yes. And would you say that it is true or not true that a lot of healthcare consumers engage in the the typical process of shopping around for the best price when it comes to care they're receiving in a hospital? Only a Sith deals in absolutes <laughs> <laughs> is my response to that. Um I think I'm going to lean 70% true, 30% false, because I think most people want to do that, and they try to do that, and but they aren't equipped to do so, because what's going to happen is they're going to call Hospital A and say, I have X insurance and I need a colonoscopy, what's the rate? That's hopefully how they're approaching it. Um, and then they're going to go to hospital B and say, hey, my insurance is this. What is the rate, you know, based on the procedure I'm having done? Um, so in that regard, yes, they are shopping around for who can give them the best deal. But what happens in reality more often is you have a doctor that you see and you have a specific insurance plan. And that doctor decides, you need to go see this specialist for this procedure. And your insurance says, oh, well, we don't actually cover that person. So you're going to have to go see this person instead. And so, yes, you're shopping around for the best rate, but you also are being told who you can and cannot go see. Because you're in a, a payer system, a health insurance system. And they are the ones who decide, and, and there is the illusion of choice. They tell you, you can certainly go and have this procedure done with a specialist, but we're only going to compensate 40% of the bill rather than 80%. And that's, that's, that's called in-network versus out-of-network, where the payer has gone to these different physicians and providers and said, we want to pay you this much. And the doctors say, yes, okay, I agree to that. And they are then in network versus the provider or the versus the payer going to a provider and saying, we would like to pay you this much for this procedure. And the provider says, no, I charge more than that. And I value my time and my skill, and I'm not going to charge less for it. So that provider is now out of network. So you're going to 
have lower reimbursement to that provider. So yes, to your original question, yes, people are doing that. Some don't understand how to go about it. And at the end of the day, people try to do it and then they just can't because they can't choose their providers. Um, which I think is another thing that comes up when we talk about universal healthcare is everyone keeps saying, oh, I want to choose my provider. You're not choosing your provider now. Your provider is chosen for you. Maybe you have a list of about 10 or 12 providers and that your insurance says you can go to and will pay the majority of your bill or whatever your pricing structure is. So you've already been told you can only see these providers. These are what you have to choose from. So, okay, within that very, very small pool, you can choose your provider. But then you also have to think about who is closest to you, who is most convenient for you to see, who is actually accepting new patients, who who will actually accept you as a patient, because not everyone is going to take everyone. So in all reality, you are not choosing your provider already. And when we go into universal health care, and when that becomes our reality, you might not have a real choice of who you see as a provider, but you will have more choice, and your choice won't be driven on dollar amount. Your choice will be driven based on reputation of that provider. Your choice will be driven on personal preference. Your choice will be driven based on your medical history and whether that doctor can effectively treat you. So the amount of dollars that exit your wallet to go see the doctor is not going to be the deciding factor anymore. And it's also going to enable people to take in other more practical considerations like proximity. I, when, when I was first diagnosed with a disease a few years ago, I was in Salem and the, the place that offered the best care for my condition was in Portland. That's an hour drive. So that's, that's kind of exclusionary to, to say, you know, can I justify going here and then also paying all of the out-of-pocket costs with my insurance on top of the gas and time that it's going to take to get there. So it, it frees us up a lot to move within the healthcare system in a way that is going to be most conducive to our, our specific needs and capabilities and and to give you to give you listeners a little bit of a behind the curtain look um, the bulk of my current job within healthcare is talking to providers at various hospitals who have a patient who is above their capability to treat either because um, they have a serious injury or because they have a condition that can only be treated um, by a specialist at a specific location and coordinating the move of that patient from their facility to one of the ones that I support in my job function. And you might think, okay, well, you know, I live, you know, an hour away from Portland, so if I need specialty care, I just need to bus up I-5 for an hour. But we are talking about patients who are coming from the coast, who come from as far as... Um, Northern California, Far Eastern Oregon. Um, obviously, this is unprecedented times and extenuating circumstances, but there are patients being transferred from as far as Idaho and, Man- and Montana 
to hospitals here in Portland and in Seattle because mostly because of capacity in those in those cases but also because specialty care is so inaccessible and so expensive and it's not lucrative for a physician who is forced to work in the for-profit healthcare system to take their highly specialized practice and go live in eastern oregon and go live on the coast and go live in these rural outlying areas so you have that issue of proximity and i'm not saying in in universal healthcare we're going to have neurosurgeons and gi specialists around every corner but they are going to have they're going to be spread out to where the need is greatest versus where they can make the most money You touched on something just now that I think is worth a a bigger amount of consideration in this conversation, and that's going to be the difference between for-profit care and non-profit care. Can you speak to what the major differences between those two things are? Yes. um, I actually am speaking this literally looking at my degree of Bachelor's of Science in Business Healthcare Management, so I feel I can answer that question. In, in America, we have two different healthcare delivery systems. We have for-profit healthcare and we have non-profit healthcare. Up until, a, up until the 1970s, I want to say, um, healthcare was by default non-profit. Um, it, Kaiser Permanente, I hate to drop name brands, but they were the ones who started it. And it was actually Mr. Kaiser. Um, who was a friend of, it was either Nixon or Reagan, and I really want to say Nixon. Um, And Nixon passed legislation, or he enacted laws that allowed for hospitals to operate for profit. And this led Mr. Kaiser to establish the network of Kaiser Permanente hospitals and healthcare providers, uh, which was the first for-profit healthcare delivery system in America. Um, Others have popped up and health insurance has become almost entirely a for-profit industry. Um, And if you look at actual percentages, about 95% of hospitals in America are non-profit. They are community-based or faith-based and they exist for the benefit of the community they are in. and, and that is an actual specific requirement to be considered a nonprofit organization is that you are meeting the needs of your community. Um, I currently, the organization I work for currently is a nonprofit organization, and that is a huge thing that we actually have to audit ourselves on and that we have to do a lot of introspection and say, is our community being served by what we provide? Um, And for the most part, I feel we do. Um, For a for-profit organization, they don't have that requirement. Their only requirement is to profit. Um, In in where we are at in Oregon, there are are even fewer for-profit hospitals than the national average. Um, Kaiser Permanente is the main one I can think of. And then there's one in McMinnville. That's for-profit, and that's the only one I know of, to be honest. 
Don't we have two Kaisers here? We we do have two Kaiser hospitals in Portland. We have Kaiser Westside and we have Kaiser Sunnyside, and they're kind of you know twin hospitals. I regard them as two different hands of the same body. Um, so it's it's hard for me to think of them as as separate entities. I want to go back and visit something that you were just talking about about the requirements for nonprofit healthcare providers serving the community because I know that I I don't remember if it's this hospital that you're working with now or the last hospital that you're in but they were massively involved in a a pretty important community project yes that was the uh, last organization I worked for and they actually put literally millions of dollars on the table to fund the development of three brand new built from the ground up uh, low-income housing developments. I actually live about a mile from one of them and about a mile and a half from one of the other ones. Um, and the one closest to me, it, it's just an apartment building. It's just low-income housing. Um, and then the next closest one is actually a hybrid building, and they have a healthcare clinic in the building. They also have low-income housing. Um, and they have some other office space. I think there's a dental office there now. I'm not sure. Um, but I think what's most fascinating is the third development that they made, which you're grinning, your weird sadistic grin. Um, but the third development, which was actually the first one that was uh, constructed, is in the North Portland neighborhood. And in addition to it being a low-income housing development, they also put the contingency on it um, that they prioritized um, BIPOC people specifically who had historical and family ties to that neighborhood to offset the displacement that that organization had actually been responsible for um, several decades prior uh, when they literally kicked people out of their homes to make room for their hospital. And so I think that's a really strong and a really... um, undeniable part of meeting community need um and i actually i really have to commend the former ceo of that organization who spearheaded this project for specifically saying in no uncertain terms housing is healthcare, and it 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 really is that simple you can't i'm gonna go on a tangent here i'm sorry um you can't treat someone in an emergency room and say okay well you're you'll be fine here's two weeks of antibiotics, um, you'll be fine. And then send them back, and if they don't have a house that they can go to, if they don't have a secure residence, those medications are going to go missing. They might sell them for something that they see as a more immediate need, um, food or clothing or what have you. That medication is not going to be finished. And in the case of antibiotics, that means that their infection is not going to go away and is now going to probably be immediate impervious to the medication they were prescribed. So what started off as a mild infection that would be treated with a basic round of a simple antibiotic is now going to turn into a uh, situation where the patient may be septic, where they have an infection in their bloodstream and now has to be hospitalized, which increases the healthcare costs. So the organization and the CEO of that organization made the connection and said, we can't ethically proceed without also making sure that we are trying to house 
our patients and serve our community in this capacity. Stepping off of that soap box, um, we get into the really complicated mess of the relationship between nonprofit healthcare providers and the for-profit um, healthcare payers or insurance companies. And I, I mentioned earlier that about 95% of the hospitals in America are nonprofit. And, and that's a static figure that's not really, um, you know, it's not a, 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 I'm sure it can change, uh, but it's not really subject to much interpretation. Um, conversely, about, it's almost exactly the opposite. It's about just shy of 94% of healthcare payers, insurance companies, are for-profit. And these two different industries, basically, have to interact with each other. And so you have a for-profit company paying a not-for-profit company, and the priorities don't align. And the for-profit healthcare payer is going to constantly be asking the nonprofit organization, why are you putting all of this money? Why are you using all of these resources on not direct patient care? Why are you not, you know, why are you spending money on non-productive things? Why are you not being as efficient as possible? And they're going to use that to try and drive down their rate and say, you know, we're okay with you not meeting our standards of productivity, but we're going to pay you a lower rate, which is going to lower the amount of revenue that that healthcare delivery system is able to work with. And so you create this back and forth poll um, that is just, it's, it's an irreconcilable dichotomy. And it, it's like pushing the matching ends of a magnet together. I was no, just going to say, it seems like they're diametrically it, opposed. No matter how hard you try to put them together, they're never going to work. Um, and I think another interesting thing is when you see nonprofit healthcare payers, um, which do exist, um, the organization I work for cur currently has a nonprofit healthcare payer attached to it um, under the same name, you see these two entities are really not coexisting. Even though they are intrinsic intrinsically linked, there can never be a true resolution. And so you see, oh, I remember I was talking about nonprofit payers. My goodness. So we have this nonprofit payer which I mean to to be clear on even nonprofit organizations, they still have to have revenue. They still have to, you know, have income so they can pay their employees, they can pay for equipment, keep the lights on, feed people, which is actually a huge part of healthcare. And the nonprofit payer operates in such a wildly different way than so many of its for-profit peer organizations. And it makes it, it makes it harder in some ways for the healthcare delivery system, the actual hospitals and doctors in the organization, to interact with the for-profit organizations because they know they have a payer base, they know they have patients who are going to come see them, 
And so they have a much stronger position to negotiate with with the um, with the for payer or with the for profit payer organizations. The another interesting thing about the the not for profit and the non profit healthcare delivery systems is that if they can operate in a vacuum or in a closed market where it's just not-for-profit organizations, it's actually really interesting because you see organizations only working for community benefit. And you still see the challenges of people unable to access healthcare because of cost. You do still see the inefficiencies of healthcare. But these organizations are more likely to provide discounted care, charity care, and to provide more low-cost and no-cost options for their communities, and to provide more, less directly healthcare-related services. The issue arises when a for-profit organization enters into that market, when uh, we actually saw this a lot as for-profit healthcare rolled out into the country. Um, ironically, you saw it most in the Midwest and the Deep South, because those were generally well-served communities with local hospitals that functioned well enough on their own and were basically driven out and driven out of business as for-profit contenders came in to those markets. And when you have a for-profit healthcare delivery system coupled with a for-profit payer system, you now have two organizations who have basically the same goal, who speak the same language, and work in the same ways. And in any other industry, this would lead to remarkable efficiency. This would lead to, to an astounding level of productivity. But when it comes to healthcare, it leads to corruption and just despicable outcomes because you see hospitals operating at their most productive, which means as fast as possible, no downtime, everything's you know being metered out and being doled out as specifically as possible so there's as little waste as possible so that they can make the most money and then the healthcare payer is looking at ways to pay as little as possible and so this results in inferior care for the patient first of all and it results in more stressful working conditions for the actual caregivers of the hospital and of the healthcare organization but when you get to the top, when you get to the executives and the people running both of these organizations, they are now making millions of dollars in salaries and annual bonuses. And you see this dichotomy of really negative outcomes that could easily be improved with a little bit of money and these extraordinary profits. I want to talk, I want, I want to loop back to those outcomes because we're talking about an industry that American citizens are paying $3.8 trillion to every year. 
what do our health outcomes look like for that $3.8 trillion when compared to other countries that don't spend that much money? Either because they they have a universal option or because they have eliminated for-profit insurance companies. So if you look at actual metrics, and, and I want to first preface this by saying that healthcare outcomes are ridiculously difficult to measure because you can't just look at a mortality rate because there can be a lot of other circumstances that are outside of the healthcare organization's control. What you do look at is preventable death, Fetal and infant mortality rates are a really good barometer to look at for the quality of a healthcare organization. And also the life expectancy is probably the the most overreaching and the most inclusive barometer for healthcare quality. And when you look at that, the United States doesn't even make the top 10. So so technically Hong Kong, Japan, Switzerland, Singapore, Italy, Spain, Australia, Iceland, Israel, and South Korea have the longest life expectancies. That is including countries in East Asia that have historically throughout pretty much all recent history had extraordinary lifespans and countries with universal health care. So if you are, are looking at at these metrics and you're using these to gauge whether the healthcare system is good or not, you really can only arrive at the conclusion that the American healthcare system isn't that good. And when you consider the percentage that it occupies in our gross domestic product, and when you consider how expensive it is just in general, you you really can't help but feel it should be the best based on how much we're spending, based on how inaccessible it is. Just to kind of underline what you're saying, when you look at, at fetal mortality rates um, for all of the countries in the world, the United States is 45th. So there are 44 countries that are that have lower fetal mortality rates. Of the 36 OECD countries that are monitored, we are 33rd for infant mortality. So when we're looking at just the numeric support for our healthcare system, what we see is that there's so much room for improvement, and we spend more on healthcare than any other country in the world hand over foot. It's not just a slight percentage. It is orders of magnitude more. And it's not just a sheer dollar amount because we're a sicker people that, you know, individual populations have different health needs and different cultures have different attitudes towards health as a community topic. So let's dive into U.S. government healthcare subsidies and who they are, how they work, and the part they play in the healthcare industry. So in 2013, 56% of total healthcare expenditures were covered by U.S. subsidies, and that includes uh, the Medicare and Medicaid programs, 
as well as TRICARE and VA. And each four of those programs serves a different population. And there is some overlap. So if you meet the qualifications for each category. And for Medicare, those qualifiers are that you're either over 65 or that you are uh, permanently disabled. And those are actually within Medicare. Those are two separate sub-programs. They're still both Medicare and they still abide by the same rules as each other. But there is a difference between disability Medicare and Medicare based on age. And then you have Medicaid, which is specifically for low-income Americans. And it is a federal program. It is a federal agency managed by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, CMS. And it does have its own specific qualifiers, but it is it is managed and distributed by a, by each individual state. So what Oregon's qualifications to get on OHP or Oregon Health Plan, which is our iteration of Medicaid, are going to be different from the state of Washington, which is going to be different from the state of California, which is going to be vastly different from the state of Texas or the state of Louisiana, because each state contributes their own funding to Medicaid and Medicaid-related programs in different ways, to different extents, and at different rates. Some states don't contribute at all and just rely on their federal funding, and other states nearly match uh, the contributions that they get from the federal program. Uh, then we have TRICARE and VA, which kind of serve two sides of the same population coin. TRICARE is healthcare for active duty military service personnel and their families. And VA, is, or the Veterans Affairs, is healthcare for our veterans. And in some cases, their spouses as well. And these, these programs are, are so on their own and so isolated from the rest of the healthcare industry that they're almost entirely their own subject. Uh, the, the VA is a payer-provider organization, so they, they are completely self-contained. They don't really do billing uh, in the sense of being financially accountable, they do. But they don't send a bill off to someone else to get paid. They just manage their own in-house finances. They're playing with house money, basically. Uh, similarly, TRICARE is only available to active duty service members and is typically only accessible at on-base um, on hospitals and healthcare providers. So those are the four government subsidies to healthcare. And altogether, they make up over half of the healthcare reimbursement and healthcare expenditures that we have in this country. In 2013. As of 2013. Those numbers are probably different by now because Medicaid has expanded significantly since then, and more and more people are getting on Medicare. And that is a huge part of this discussion, especially when you consider 
Medicare for All being the primary model for universal health care in the United States. I'm going to pause you there for just a second, because what I think is fascinating is that while those, those U.S. health care programs comprised 56% of, of our health care expenditures in 2013, six years later in 2019, well after the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, we've seen that drop by almost half. The government programs now account for 31.6% of total healthcare expenditures in the country. So when we're talking about those government subsidized health programs, what we saw after the implementation of the ACA was a, a significantly smaller role and more push towards private for-profit insurance companies. And in that regard, the ACA really only served two functions. The first was to move us further away from universal health care, as demonstrated by that reduction from 56% of government subsidized care to 31% of government subsidized care. And the second... It was just a bailout for the health insurance companies. Exactly. Another really important conversation to have when we're talking about healthcare is how much trouble people have paying for the health. For me, I think the most scathing indictment of our for-profit health insurance industry is the fact that in the United States, 66.5 of all bankruptcies include medical debt. There are over 530,000 families that file specifically medical bankruptcy each year. And the thing that I find most interesting in the last decade is that after the implementation of the ACA, which should have increased the availability of care and made it so that more people were seeking care, but also provided protections against this exact thing, according to the American Journal of Public Health, after the implementation of the ACA, the number of medical bankruptcies has not changed and other studies have shown that they have increased by two percent. So a program that was heralded as a step closer to universal health care has actually resulted in more medical debt related bankruptcy. Yes, which would indicate that it's responsible for creating more and we medical have debt. And we have also, in that same time, seen government contribution to the cost of health care decrease dramatically. And we've seen rapidly increasing costs associated with the care that more people are now accessing. It's almost as though the Affordable Care Act wasn't a good thing. So a thing that currently is harrowing my soul is the fact that Joe Biden is the president. And Joe Biden has indicated repeatedly that instead of going for a universal health care option like Medicare for All or some other solution, he is infinitely more interested in strengthening the ACA. And when, when we're looking at the analysis of the ACA and saying, well, it's driven up the cost of care, it's decreased the government spending on care, and it's created more medical debt. 
Strengthening the ACA seems like a really bad idea. It sounds like a disaster. And that kind of dovetails nicely into talking about what it would cost to implement Medicare for All. Current projections, and it, it desperately needs to be noted that there are a, a lot of pathways to implementing Medicare for All or any universal healthcare option in this country. But current projections put the cost of, of implementation of Medicare for All between 30 and $40 trillion over the next 10 years. And people who, who speak out against Medicare for All like to point at that and say, well, that's a lot of money. Where are you going to get the money for that? From where Here's we're the already thing, though, spending that much? We're already spending $3.8 trillion a year. And if you extrapolate that out to a decade, even without accounting for increasing costs, which we know is going to happen, mm -hmm. that's still $38 trillion over 10 years. That falls well within the projected 30 to $40 trillion price tag for Medicare for All. So really, worst case scenario is we spend a very minute percentage more. That's the worst case scenario. Exactly. More realistically, we're going to fall closer to the $30 trillion, if not less, because part of universal health care is going to include banning for-profit health care. And so when you take away that administrative waste. You take away the CEO bonuses. You take away the impetus to make money. And you simply are driving healthcare for the sake of making people healthier. Your costs are going to go down. That's just a simple fact. And so, it, honestly, it could even be less. I think the, the number of 30 to 40 trillion is derived from... Medicare existing in the current healthcare delivery system, where we have the mix of the for-profit and non-profit providers. And another major objection is that people don't want their tax dollars going to healthcare for other people. But again, bouncing back to the you... very beginning of, of this podcast, you're already participating in a system exactly like this. And if you think that your payroll deduction for health insurance isn't an incidental tax, you're gravely mistaken. Um, we talked about this um, in our first episode on what forms of socialism exist in the United States today. All insurance is a form of socialism. It is a group of people pooling a set amount of resources so that if someone needs some of those resources at a future date, they can take what they need and then they contribute back into the pool and it builds back up and it continues so on and so forth. And I think the most important difference between the kind of socialism that exists in our current for-profit health insurance industries and the kind of socialism that would exist in a universal healthcare system is that all we're doing is cutting out the middlemen. We're cutting out the need for excessive billing and coding. Everything would be unified. We would have a single reimbursement structure. So we would eliminate all of the, the 
administrative waste associated with those positions, we would save hundreds of millions of dollars a year on just the, like, like you said, Lance, just the CEO compensation packages. And we, we would see probably a slight destabilization in things like the stock market as these for-profit... You mean astrology for rich old white men? Yeah. Chart of white guys' feelings. Mm. Um, We would see a slight disruption in the stock market as we eliminated these for-profit companies and took their capital out of this capitalist gaming system. And I, I don't think that these are reasonable justifications to avoid moving into universal health care options. When you have a when you have a structure like the stock market that goes up or down based on the tweets of a senile almost octogenarian, I refuse to allow that to be a consideration for whether or not more Americans should live than currently are living. That our our mortality rate could be better, or yes, our mortality rate could be better if it weren't for the desires of old rich people wanting to get older and richer. That's really all that it comes down to is Americans are dying at a higher rate than they need to just so that old rich people can get older and richer. Thank you for joining us for this week's Social Cast. Social Cast publishes a new episode every Sunday, so make sure to add us to your podcast library to be notified of new content. Social Cast is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Join the conversation with us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Social Cast Podcast and on Twitter at Social Cast Pod. If you're interested in supporting SocialCast, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash SocialCast.